0: Welcome to First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. I'm your host, James Gardner, certified athletic therapist, certified strength and conditioning specialist, yoga instructor, human being. This platform, for the pros, by the pros, anybody in the performance space, and beyond. Welcome here to share in the stories of professionals, experiences, journeys, learning along the way, It's a platform to connect, to network and to be a part of a community that cares with conversations that matter, experiences that resonate and generate ideas. Thought-provoking, organic dialogue, passionate probes. Brought to you as always by First Star Therapy, Mobility Tape, Epic and Benchmark Athletics. In association with the Canadian Athletic Therapists Association, it's for Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you for being a part of it. I think I'll do computer because that seems reasonable for this evening <clears throat> all right so let's uh let's uh let's get rolling here we'll go through the ground rules first i'll, I'll go through a, a fairly formal uh, introduction and then an informal introduction of some of my favorite stories uh oh, wow. and then <laughs> and then we'll uh we'll get rolling so this is let's chat in athletic therapy roundtable session 28 Already, uh, Joe Herdabes is our guest this evening. Uh, really excited to, to speak with Joe and all the things that she 's done and have her insight and have her speak with with all of you guys. So if anybody has any questions at any point, please feel free to unmute yourself politely and, uh, or in the chat box and um, type in a message, type in uh, a question i 'll do my best to filter them over to you, Joe so you don 't have to read the, the chat box and have one hundred thousand things going on. Um, but other than that, those are the rules. It is recording and that is for the purposes of saving the world one conversation at a time, uh, as well as going back in time to recall all the tidbits and morsels that turned into big giant thoughts that turned into plots to take over the world of uh, neuroscience and athletic therapy. So this is, this will be a good one. Um, Joe really want to thank you first and foremost for, for, for taking the time and for uh, making yourself available. And it's been a crazy couple months uh, or if not life, uh, um and so making time making time to get on here you were well endorsed on uh, Wednesday evening by Glenn Bergeron who was uh, uh, a big fan of yours and uh, uh and everybody else who's here um really appreciate you guys making the time to be here everybody picking this up on YouTube after the fact um same thing, it really makes a difference to have people uh, paying attention, talking about the profession within the profession with other professionals and, and building this sort of integrated model of, of what athletic therapy is and can be. So, without further ado, our guest tonight, let's chat in Athletic Therapy Roundtable session 28 is Joanna Herjabes. Joe completed her AT at York University, uh, becoming certified in 2014. She also completed her PhD in kinesiology and health science and a graduate diploma in neuroscience at York University. Her area of research was in motor control with a focus on concussion and post-concussion syndrome. I didn't say that correctly. Uh, The research looked at both behavioral changes in motor skill post-injury, as well as advanced neuroimaging techniques. So we're going to get into some of that because I think that is way above uh, above my head, um, but certainly worth diving into. To, in terms of understanding what's available, um, what that research uh, provides or can provide in the future. Um, But let's keep going. During her PhD, she worked part time as an athletic therapist at the York University Gorman Shore Sport Injury Clinic, uh, as well as a certified athletic therapist for teams of the Ontario Varsity Football League. Uh, Hang on one second, let me just do this. Um, uh, other, other, her other AT work includes a student internship with the Toronto Argonauts and volunteering for the Pan Am and Para Pan Am and the women's FIFA World Cup. She is, has worked as an instructor for the AT program at the University of Winnipeg. And she's now working full time as an instructor for Camuson College, as well as contributing faculty member in the graduate program of health sciences at St. Augustine University in the United States of America. She is a member of the CATA. Are you currently? Yes. Yes, yes. Currently a member of, yeah, sorry, currently a member of the CATA Education Committee for three years. She's presented her research and has been an invited speaker at numerous national and international conferences, including the CATA Annual Conference, the NATA Conference, the Society for Neuroscience Conference, the Annual Canadian Neuroscience Meeting, and the Fifth International Consensus on Concussion Meeting in Berlin. Along an arduous journey in academia, in field, in clinic, and a well-rounded human being. Um, Wow, what, what what a bio, what a CV, Joe. You've done so much in such a short time. You're an inspiration to all of us, myself included. This much, you know, from sitting next to me and me hitting my head off the table numerous times, um, but I'm going to put it out there publicly as well. You've inspired me to do a lot of the things um, that I've done in my life and my career, and I uh, just wanted to put that out there as a, as a giant thank you to you for for continuing to inspire. I'll let you say hi to everybody, and then let's jump into some, uh, some heavy topics.
1: Okay. Uh, I guess... Hello, everybody. It's it's fun to kind of uh, scroll through and see who's on here uh, because, you know, some of you guys I haven't seen uh, in a while and it, it's kind of fun that I've, I've had the experiences um, now at three different institutions, the AT program that's definitely uh, you know, let me give me opportunities to meet um, a lot of my peers, a lot of ATs across the country, which is a uh, which I think is, is amazing and I love to see what everybody's doing and, and that's great so um, hello everybody <laughs>
0: It's an, awesome, it's an awesome intro and, and it's amazing. I was just having a conversation with, uh, well, with a good friend of mine and colleague and he was saying like, man, you know what? It's great that you've done a lot at York and I know that you're still in contact with them, but you should think about trying to go to some other institutions and get that. And, and so this provides a lot of insight, right? To see how things are done, to see what's different, what works, what doesn't work um, across the three without saying better, worse or whatever. Have you noticed differences in the programs or, um, or anything that stands out?
1: Uh, so it's, I don't know how this happened, but what's really interesting is that every time I have entered into a program, it's kind of been at the time of a transition. Uh, so at York, um, I was kind of there when, when um came in as the new director of the program. So I kind of got to see how that program, uh, all the, the background, how long it takes to change a program. And I know that kind of rolled out as soon as I left. So I kind of saw that progress, uh, the progression there. And then university of winnipeg as well was going through um, an accredited year and as well as creating changes which are now being rolled out now that i've left um and now at camosa we just when i when i started we were also in an accredited year so we also have the accreditation committee to come in and go through our program so i just i don't know why i always seem to fall into these places where we're getting accredited and making changes but it's also great so um, because what's really interesting to me is that all the programs are, every single program, I'd say their, their goal is to do better their program, every single one. And I've noticed that uh, since I was a student, even a lot of the programs are now really taking a collaborative approach and, and kind of talking to other programs and seeing what what works for you, what doesn't work for you, what, you know, why did you make these changes that you made? And, and sometimes, you know, it doesn't work. What works at one institution can't work at another, just, just logistics and stuff. But it's, I find that to really, I really love that. And I, and I like that that's where a lot of the program directions are going. So um, I'm gonna say that across all of them, which is great. Um, and each of the programs I find had uh, different pros and cons to them. And, and that's nice too, because as a student, you need to find the program that might best suit you and what you need and, and also maybe where you live. but. Um, all of them, you know, have to follow the competency. So all of them are going to be similar in what you learn in your, in your outcomes, but, you know, some different pros and cons to the different programs. So, um, you know, I, I don't like sharing some of the, my thoughts on that, but I don't know if I'm getting into too much about that, but
0: yeah, yeah, no, no, I think it's, I just think it's awesome, because uh, not a lot of people have a lot of experience outside of, uh, of where they are, right? So um, when you get an opportunity to sort of go country, almost countrywide, in terms of uh, all the programs, or some of the programs, I mean, you've traveled in, traveled internationally with the work that you've done, but specifically to AT, it really provides uh, a good scope and a good breadth to understand uh, what's going on. And, 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 you know, like how um, how much quality education there is in for this profession and within these, these uh, the programs that we have in Canada. And so that that's a talking point of, of these chats is, is just trying to, you know, build awareness, um, uh, acknowledge some of the robust roles that people have in AT and and sort of like how these things play uh, in academia, in field and all these other things. So it's awesome to have you on and your take on all of it is, is well warranted. And you talk about, um, yeah, you talk about sort of timing or coincidental, or you don't know how it works out. Well, it just does. I, I no longer believe in coincidental timing. Timing is a thing that happens based on how you set yourself up, um, through your, through your immediate actions. And then when you look back in retrospect, you know, you got to a point because you're meant to get to that point and, um, and, and where things are changing. I think you're a great person to have in a role where things are changing because you just have so much uh, knowledge and understanding of so many things. Um, you're, uh, frozen right now I'm hoping that we didn't lose you or it might be me uh hang on one second are you there I'm, I'm here I
1: can hear
0: you okay perfect I don't I don't know you're freezing maybe it's my internet the Canadian internet thing is uh, is suffering but um regardless just just your your scope of practice and everything that you've done um looking back over your career uh di- did you find this early or did you find this sort of through your experience in terms of um what you wanted to do
1: oh um (laughs) i still feel like i don't know what i want to do um oh i feel like i fell into this to be honest um i don't know you kind of said things don't happen by by coincidence and uh, i kind of uh, believe that i tell my students sometimes my story so if you're a student on here and you've heard the story I, i apologize but um you know when i I'm going to go back to high school. And I almost got kicked out of high school and here I am right now. So, um, I think it's kind of, kind of funny and, and I think just things just happen and, um, you know, I, I did my undergrad in phys ed and that's when I kind of got introduced to athletic therapy and, uh, uh, decided to, to kind of pursue this. And I actually originally applied for physio school and got waitlisted. And, um, I always say like, that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, because you know, I got into athletic therapy and I remember doing placements with physios and I it just wasn't for me I just realized that I that would have been completely the wrong path for me. And I so I'm really glad that that door kind of closed on me. Um, because it was closing for all the right reasons. So I ended up doing the athletic therapy and I thought at the time I was like, yeah, might as well just do the masters at the same time, why not? <laughs> right. So <laughs> I was like, it's a couple letters after my name, why not? It's offered to me, so let's do it and Um, I kind of always had a thirst for learning and I think that my masters opened up that door and I met some of the right people. So when my PhD was offered to me, I kind of jumped at that opportunity again, not really knowing, uh, what I was going to do with that, but just realizing that, you know, that opportunity was there for me. Um, and if I hated research, you know, I could still work as a clinician and that would always be there for me. I'm not going to lose my credentials, I'm going to maintain and try to um, continue to work as an athletic therapist and grow my skill set, but I can do that at the same time while I'm doing research. So uh, my only stipulation when I started my PhD was that I could continue to work as an AT because I didn't want to lose my, my skills. Yeah. And so that's why I worked uh, part-time during my PhDs. I, I wanted to make sure that as a new grad, I wasn't stepping away from it completely. Um, right from the get-go. So again, I just kind of fell in uh, to my PhD and I loved it and I really enjoyed it. And uh, which kind of, you know, after I've done that, I, I was looking for jobs and kind of fell into, into work, something just opened and here I am. <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really nice, it's a really nice take on it, you know, to see, uh, to see, because we've had, I've had, you know, guests on here that have talked about uh, not just jumping into your masters, because it's the next thing to do, you know, knowing what you want to do and those kinds of things, which I'm a firm believer in as well. Um, But sometimes it, it is just do the next logical thing and the next logical thing will follow and the next logical thing will follow after that and for somebody in neuroscience maybe like that's a real thing like logic is I don't know whatever part of the brain logic is but then just things happen and that's kind of a cool way to to go about it as well and it's not um again it, 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 at the time it kind of feels like you're just kind of doing what happens but then when you look back at it everything kind of lined up and you were in the right place and you got waitlisted and you, you know, all these things. So it's a really cool, it's really, really awesome to sort of sit here play host and just listen to people's stories and, and and provide those stories for other people and have other people have access to those because you know there are some some students who are just coming out or have just finished or you know some people who are looking for a transition from doing the same thing they've always done or or trying to spark something new or whatever the case may be so so hearing different people and, and definitely with your background um, we'll get into some of the richer stuff in terms of your studies and um, and all the stuff with concussion and all those things but the career track is always an interesting one. You know, I feel like we could talk about that, um, forever. Although we should probably have like a, a 50 pack at Tim bits and, some tim hortons or something like that because that was a that was a go-to and then i'll sit on the chair and you sit on the chair and we'll just talk for a bunch of time and see what happens in the clinic because this is where joe and i met joe and i met in uh, uh i think when you were a student maybe and then uh i was working at york and then eventually you transitioned into to work at york and and then sort of uh run the show and i was just sort of following you around trying to learn as many things as possible um and uh and away we went so it was a kind of a nice little thing where you had all these connections on the academic side um and 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 deep and rich uh resources resources in terms of that and um and m- maybe you want to go into that in terms of like how you tied that in with AT, like uh your 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 master's and then your phd just sort of walk us down that road because that's a that's a that's pretty awesome actually in terms of all the things that you've done
1: so Mike, hi mike <laughs>
0: mike with the late entrance look at his crazy hair i had to
2: see joe uh,
1: Yeah, so my research and how that tied in. So obviously, and I think everybody knows here, um, especially even even five years ago, five six years ago. uh, One of my biggest frustrations is always concussion. Right, athletes are always like, "Why don't you guys know anything?" I know it's kind of like, yeah, we're kind of like, "Mm, I don't know, pull you out. So I always felt like that was just the one injury that really, I guess, annoyed me that I couldn't really answer. Like, I don't know how long you're going to be out for. I don't know anything. Um, and then I, so in my master's just to, to give you guys some, some background, my master's was a coursework course that I just kind of went and picked
2: and, and
0: I, f- I feel like it might not be my internet. It might be hers. So just give me I Okay, hang hang on one sec, Joe. You're um, just you're just um, you're just
1: cutting. It might be mine, yes.
0: Yeah, you're just cutting in and out a bit. So just maybe re- reboot back Sorry, to like thirty yeah. second, thirty seconds ago, and start okay. that over. Again. You, or do you, um, no, no problem. That's fine. It's the internet. It happens. It's real life right now. And then she's frozen, but she looks. Um, really- I don't
1: know why my it, it shows full full bars. I, I have full bars.
0: Yeah. I think you're good. Go, go, go. Yeah. Just go. Just roll.
2: I'll
0: try to fill in the blanks. I don't know them, but I'll try to fill them in. We have lots of friends and people who know you on here, so we can have them jump in too. Nope. Not happening. Not happening at all. You're, You're locked out frozen as can be. So, um, I don't know. You, I don't know what to do here. Let's try and uh, try and do one of those like log out and log back in things. I don't know. This is what the IT department would tell me to do: is turn off your computer and turn it back on. Um, but but getting into sort of some of the work that Joe's done, um, she okay. re- yeah no I don't know yeah so she I was uh, gonna
1: say um, my master's uh, well, there you go I was trying to fix my modem. I was trying to see if that worked.
0: All right, go for it. Yeah, I think you're moving again.
1: Uh, I started to my master's and it was uh, it was course-based masters. Um so that meant I took a whole bunch of grad courses. Um, and so Jill and Cheryl are here so they can kind of talk about that if they want. So we basically just took any that sounded interesting and fit into our schedule. I was also doing therapy. Um and so I took a neuro class. Jill and Cheryl were in that with me with um, Dr. Lauren Sergio, and I just kind of I just fell in love with neuro. It just was interesting, it was really cool. Um, If anybody's had a class with Dr. Sergio, you'll know she is just also a very interesting human being. Love her. (laughs) You can't help but be excited when she's in the room. Right. Um, So that kind of stemmed my interest in that area. Um, And then uh, it was actually Lauren who came and um, asked me if I wanted to pursue my PhD in this specific area motor control and concussion. And so, it was really interesting to because then I was able to kind of interview her and see where my res- my interests fit into her research program and so she really wanted to bring in a clinician um, to her lab which I, I think speaks really highly of her um, and so yeah I think that's where it kind of kind of started from um, and I think you know as ATs, the motor system is the most important system um, for us, right? Like how, how do we move? And so I wanna know how concussion affects how our athletes are moving after it because that's what they need to do. Yep. So, you know, and, and so that was kind of why that area really spoke to me. Um, and then once I was there and, and, you know, kind of learning, it made sense as a clinician, I could bring something different to the table than researchers could bring to the table. So um, kind of stem my area of interest. I'm not sure, hopefully that answered your question.
0: Yeah, no, I think it's great, and it kind of leads me to the the, the next kind of um, simplistic view, in in my opinion, because I have to you know this, I have to simplify things or else I I am lost. So um, you break it down to like the motor system being the most important area for for ATs. This just makes sense. But a lot of us um, going through school, um, not everybody, but but myself and and many people that are probably on here are going to watch this is. Um, you know, you're overwhelmed by neuroanatomy and neuroscience and like it's such a big term and there's so much to it that like, oh, I I think I'll not take that class. But it's such a strong and uh, obviously like foundational component to everything that we do in a clinic. So so just even growing that a little bit over time through your career, let alone like, a, a, you know, a PhD, a master's, all the stuff that you've done. Um, but through your career, just pulling like a neuroanatomy textbook and like, Oh, my gosh, the brain actually has a role in what we're doing. That's kind of important, you know, and for me, I've sort of simplified things down to like breath work, uh, mind work, and like, you know, the movement. So, you know, motor stuff as well. Um, but those are that's how I look at, you know, treatment, training, all these things that we simplify it enough, we can make it really, really relatable to just about anybody. And it's no longer overwhelming to, to take little bites out of as you go along. So really cool stuff. And, and your, your, your master's wasn't, uh, was not in neuro though. Right. To start like you did. Yeah.
1: No, my master's was course based. So it was just a general master. So right. it was masters in health and kinesiology. So it was, it was more general. Um, and my project that Cheryl and I published and, and co-wrote was uh, epidemiological, study, right. so kind of rates and risks of injury.
2: Yeah,
0: um, yeah. yeah cool. And then, and then the transition happened as you were sort of wrapping up that MSC and, and, and moving into, yeah, neuro. So, so tell us about the, the first project that you did sort of in your P, with your PhD or, or one of. Uh, we talk about motor control um and and i don't want to butcher this so so why don't you sort of give us our, your take on um on where you got into this and how you decided what you were going to study and then the evolution as we moved into like the fmri and all the things that you know about now um but sort of how it started and then how it grew let's let's go but before you do that did, did you watch tiger king or no because i'm going to forget to ask you and that's crucial yeah i did Hey, okay. all you cool cats and
1: kittens of course i did yeah yeah nice welcome. Did, did i add a Applied anatomy questions based on the *Tiger King* into my final exams this year? Absolutely.
0: That's a hard yes, exactly. So, so that's amazing, and that's kind of one of the things that uh, Scott Howitt was on here uh, a few, you know, a few sessions ago, and he was saying like, this is the thing: you need to know what people are talking about to relate to them, and then you can tie questions of neuroanatomy into *Tiger King*, then you win. Everybody wins. I, I don't know. I haven't watched it, but uh i don't know i guess i'm gonna have to at some point but anyway let's let's go down this phd in the project and and then we'll get to the fmri and what's available for for clinicians and what makes the most sense in terms of sending athletes to do things and not do things and all of those things so um yeah phd jump in
1: okay so i uh was a lucky student that was uh my supervisor so dr Lawrence sergio had a project started uh, basically ready and said here you go you're doing this project which by the way, is not common in a PhD, Uh, so kudos to to Dr. Sergio for giving me that. Um, And my first project probably you know, most people think it's probably one of the coolest projects. So I was looking at elite level athletes. So um, my uh, connection with the Toronto Argos helped because I actually established um, collecting data from the Toronto Argos, um, as well as Lauren had already established connections. So the NHL draft, prospect draft was used to be held in Toronto. So Lauren was the neuroscientist that was brought in every year to that draft and she actually collected all their data um, and you know it actually impacted people who got drafted. So she had all these really cool tools uh, in looking at like reaction time and all these things. So um, I had a snapshot of that. So I actually collected data from the NHL draft prospects. So Um, We had data collected for about three years. So I only helped collect one year, but we had a whole bunch of data collected in the lab and that's what I analyzed. So in that project, we looked at elite level athletes and we had them just doing a behavioral task. This is just a task on the computer, testing their motor skill ability, on some more advanced tasks. And I can talk about that in a minute, James, but uh, this is just behavioral. And we just basically, you know, ask these athletes if they had a previous history of concussion and- The door um, opened,
0: it got creepy. I know, I know, it got
1: really creepy. There was like a ghost here for a second. I <laughs> think um, it's really windy. So uh, I think the wind is really open, but um, welcome to the prairies. Um, so, yeah, I, I was able to look at just kind of how a history of concussion. So, these athletes are asymptomatic, cleared to play by some of the best doctors in the world. And uh, we were seeing if having a history of concussion impacted their ability to do some of these advanced uh, motor skills. And the answer was uh, we did see a little, um, but compared to some of our previous work on like university age and children, it kind of like as skill level increased the amount of effect behaviorally from a motor skill um, was less affected. So basically the the big takeaway from that project was that the level of skill of the athlete in front of you will play a huge role in how they're able to perform after sustaining that
2: Yeah.
0: And, and super foundational, right? Like there's a lot of research out there. There's a lot of areas, but to understand all the things that you've, you're studying in that project uh, probably opened your eyes to, you know, possibilities and things like that. And just as you're talking and I'm sort of like going back through how we know each other and all the things that you did and like all the things that you're doing and have done not to minimize any of that, Um, the OVFL days where you're like covering football games and and you don't have necessarily like, I mean, you have medical histories maybe on like a piece of paper or something like that. Um, And then you go and do all this advanced research. And then I'm thinking now like a lot of the discussion that I'm having on here is very much like, let's look at where we can have the greatest impact as a profession Uh, and professional sports are are very cool. And that's, that's great. Um, But there's not a ton of impact there uh, other than like, almost retrospective data because they're at the end of their performance careers. Um, They already know what they're doing, at least in their own minds for some, but, but they're a little bit resistant to some of the things, some of the changes in training or rehab or whatever it may be. Um, But with regards to concussion and some of the scans and some of the testing that you've done, do you feel that now maybe more than ever, ATs could have a greater role um, in, in this realm uh, as well as like a broader AT realm in amateur sport? Does that, do you feel like that's building?
1: Oh, yeah. I think it's building, and I think it's, I think it's necessary. Um, I, I, don't, I don't understand why. I, if a sport has contact in any way, shape, or form, like the age they start contact, they should have a certified AT. I, I, I always say it.
0: Yeah, and so I think or, maybe, yeah.
1: Really, if, if you're having a, somebody do contact, um, they, you should have someone who's trained in injury management on the field.
0: So we'll, t- we'll take that as your endorsement. So anybody who's going to, to make a proposal to uh, a contact sport to have AT coverage, I- I'm going to put you out there, Joe, and just say, reach out to Joe for some of the research and some of the data, because if you have some evidence behind why you're making a proposal, other than I need, a, I need work because I'm an AT and I can't find a job, then have a proposal that's based in sound evidence. We had Katie on uh, a few weeks ago, you and Katie work closely together and continue to be, you know, friends and colleagues and all those good things. But um, I just think this evidence-based component when you're making proposals to amateur levels goes so far. And, and so Joe, I'll put you out there, like reach out to Joe if you're looking for um, some solid stuff uh, to put behind you when you're submitting. Yeah, it's great to have field coverage, but why? And so why, what can an AT do? And if you're not aware of it, then you get aware pretty quickly before you do that. So that's a great, yeah, I, that's great. Yeah.
1: James, but I'll also say that, you know, you can also, um, maybe not say with a proposal, but sometimes you can touch people on a little bit of a personal level. I remember I was covering a football game and the other field had someone who was not certified. I don't remember what they were. They, they had done first responder, but that was pretty much their level of expertise. And right. they had an emergency, an urgent situation occur on the field and they had to call an ambulance. And, and I remember, and I don't think we were playing. I think we were waiting for a game to start. And I remember turning to parents on my, my team and I said, just so you know, that is the first time they've ever boarded a player. It's the first time they've dealt with this. I have done this before. So who do you want looking after your child? Someone who's been experienced before or someone who's first time boarding is on your child. And they were all like, absolutely, someone who's done this before. So, parents want someone experienced. So, I think if you're dealing with amateur sport, sometimes you gotta.
0: Play that card as well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I don't think it's a, even a card, I just think it 's a reality. I just think there's a lot of yeah. stuff in amateur sport where a t just hasn't gained uh, a lot of exposure in the u s definitely, like high schools all have ATCs uh, if if not more than one, uh, depending what state and depending what sports they offer, but um, in Canada, I think we can we can certainly make inroads and, and are starting to I feel like these conversations are happening more and more regularly, not just here but but outside of here um, to, to really grow. Uh, knowledge and, and and all that and so some of the conversations that we have with Glenn Bergeron uh, on Wednesday um, some of those little tidbits are just uh, just just take homes and, and deliverables right away in terms of what ATs can do and, and will do so anyway not to take away from from where we were headed uh, that's a pun on the head thing um, but we're gonna go because you study brains a lot um so yeah you, you were doing the PhD and doing these things and then let's keep going down that path you uh you, you had the study that was sort of led by Dr. Sergio and then you kind of went and started doing some other stuff right like your own projects and and uh and the UNC project that that you and I had you know we were, were had an opportunity to work together on or I just kind of like sat around but you did a lot of the stuff um but let's talk about those cuz those are really cool projects and and uh and I think Uh, everybody on here will be more than um, willing to listen in on these ones.
1: Yeah. So basically after that, that first study, um, we sat in the lab just so you guys know how, you know, labs work. We we sit around talking about, we just talk, we have coffee hour. We sit and we chit chat about what we should do Um, and what, what do our results mean? Like what do that direction does our research take? And so you know, in, in our lab, we kind of said, we have all these behavioral data, but we want to know neurologically, like what's actually going on in the brain. So we sat there and we said, you know, okay, we have to do some imaging and well, what, what's and we kind of said, you know, it's, it's probably more likely that if we're going to see any effects from concussion, it might be in those individuals who have these persistent symptoms because somebody who's had a history of concussion is now 100% or feels 100% maybe we won't pick that up in imaging, so maybe we need to look at someone who has persistent symptoms. It's kind of where that next part of my project came from, which then obviously, you know, females are more likely to have post-concussion syndrome, so we decided to focus on females only, Um, and that's kind of where that direction shift took, like that turn and and focusing on post-concussion syndrome. So... Again, I was really lucky to be in a lab that uh, was like, York has an MRI, which many people don't know. And um, I was also in a lab that was able to afford research studies. So research studies are very, very expensive. Um, So we have to have the funding to be able to do that. So I was lucky because that came back to my supervisor. So I can't take credit for that. Um, So I was able to do advanced neuroimaging, um, which I guess this is where I can talk a little bit about neuroimaging. So when we look at concussion and the definition of concussion is that there is nothing on standard neuroimaging. That means that if if someone was to go to the hospital and have an MRI or a CT scan, it would come out clear. It come out clean. That means there's no brain bleed. There's nothing serious. There's nothing serious going on. Um, so advanced neuroimaging is we go beyond that, right? We're not doing the standard in the hospital imaging. I'm doing stuff that takes hours and days to analyze, um, right. that takes hours to be in the scanner for, um, it's, not used on the, it's not used in hospitals right now. And so the, right now, the advanced neuroimaging is not going to be used for diagnostics, it's to understand what's actually happening in the brain. So that's a very clear definition that needs to be put out there because there is imaging studies that show things But people need to understand that the imaging studies that are being done are advanced, so they're newer, um, and they're they're looking at a lot different things than just your standard neuroimaging. So um, I know there was—I just want to bring up there was that that big study that came out, I think last year, about um, this new blood biomarker for concussions, and that it was you know telling people when they have a concussion. That's just actually false. It was the blood biomarker was to tell some the doctors. When imaging was required or not. And that doesn't mean anything for a concussion because if imaging is negative, that actually might tell us they have a concussion. That actually doesn't clear anybody of a concussion. So that was really media kind of driven false information that a lot of that went out into the media. And that's a problem with concussion research. So that was actually not correct. Um, So yeah, so I got into imaging. I don't know what you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, No, no. And I think that's, that's, that's important, right? Obviously to, to understand what's in the media and what's actually uh, being done with that, the articles and providing, like I've talked about this probably uh, at nauseum for those that have been here more than one session, cause I'll say it every time. Um, it, it's more about the context than it is about the content, right? Like anybody can, can put articles out there and skew them a certain way to, to seem a certain way. But when you gain the full context of it, yeah, this biomarker is not telling you that you have a concussion. That is not what it's doing. So um, my my first real exposure to like just being blown away by research outside of, you know, talking to you and trying to understand what what the heck academia was when it came to studying um, was was the Gefeller Symposium like going down to UNC Chapel Hill and, and, and I don't know, maybe you can talk about cause you've been to much, many more of these, but like in terms of a, an event or a, a conference and Berlin probably too, but like um, the Gefeller symposium had uh, experts from all over the world and from every area you could think of from uh, uh, ingenuity in terms of like design of equipment for concussion reduction um, personalized mouth guards, you know, these kinds of things um, to, uh Dr. Giza from UCLA who who I think probably published that biomarker, I think, or or was an editor on it at least. Um to you know to, to everybody who's who's anybody in the concussion. Are there any other events that, that you are aware of that you would say are like if you want to learn more about concussion with everybody in one room at a really cool place, this is it. Other than like, yeah, Berlin probably right but
1: Yeah, Berlin but good luck <laughs> getting into that one. Um yeah. uh and it's also like super expensive, but yeah. So there's a few in the States, so there's that one. And then I know of have a couple in Toronto. I'm not sure if they're still happening, but the UHN University Health Network yep. Yep. Uh, usually puts on quite a few, um, some that are more rehab focused, some that are more um, like neuro focused. Um, they usually put on quite a few different symposiums throughout the year. So those are really good ones to attend, especially if you are in that Toronto area um i don't know if any you know i'll keep my eyes peeled and ears peeled for ones that are kind of out on the west coast or in in the middle of the province but i've definitely attended quite a few in toronto in toronto um u of t has a bunch of uh researchers that are also doing a lot of neuroimaging so uh it's usually a pretty good conference or symposium as well um and then calgary i don't know if calgary has you think they would? Calgary has a hot spot of some of the top researchers in the world mm-hmm. for concussions as well. I don't, What's really interesting to me is um, I don't know if people know this. Canada has some of the best concussion researchers in the world. Like we at the Berlin conference, we always had to go up and say, you know, where we are from, and Canada dominated, like dominated that conference. To a point where everybody was joking that they were from Canada because every single <laughs> person was from Canada. So I that made me really proud that you know, usually the US is thought of as being this this research powerhouse, but Canada is huge in the concussion research. So I think that's something from our own country and proud
2: of. Yeah,
0: and like uh yeah, I, I mean, I think that's uh, I think that's an area where we can, as ATs as well, sort of puff our chests up and say, like, look, we have highly qualified professionals in Canada. We don't need to go south of the border. South of the border tends to be, and not that it's bad, but south of the border tends to be a lot more uh, uh, bright lights, you know, and and big city when it comes to pro sport. And there's just a lot more uh, focus on pro sport. And when there's that much focus and that much money and that much, um, you know, f- institutional. Uh, awareness of what sport is, um, let's call it that, Um, you know, it just gets it gains more headlines and people gain more headlines if they if they, uh, you know, provide something that's going to impact the NFL, let's say, you know, and so and so anyway, I I think that's a great point. Like in Canada, there are researchers all over the, the board. Um, researchers, practitioners, all these kinds of things, and that's sort of another element of this is sort of opening our eyes to to what's going on up here and, and networks that you can have. Being Canadian, that just goes anywhere in the world as well. Like you went to Berlin uh, with a large Canadian contingent, and I'm sure you created a network, if not already had a network that was global, um, but grew some awareness as to what athletic therapy is there as well. Just just you know, um, organically, you know, just talking as a Canadian and as an athletic therapist, you do you do a really nice job of. Um, connecting data to like sciencey data to reality, right? And that's something that's hard for a lot of science people to do. And that's where like strictly science, you know. And, and we talked about over sciencing things with Katie. And I think was the first time that that that, that extremely uh, intelligent. Um, uh terminology was used on here at least um but over sciencing things just it it, it just makes it far too difficult to navigate for athletes for most of the time and for therapists or or for me anyway um uh (laughs) she says science rules of course it rules like it has to be a foundational component of what everybody does um but when it gets too sciency so how do you connect the science with the reality and i think that's it's it's innate in you because you you have an AT background, right? It's easy for you yeah. because you have that. But like, how do you do? You make that a, a priority in what you're doing.
1: Yeah, for me, yes, and not every uh, clinician scientist necessarily will, because I think you have to still understand that the basic science is important. If you don't understand it from a basic standpoint, you can't apply it from a research standpoint. So we need to have both, and I think it's important to understand that. But I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm gonna tell you a story, James. Yeah, um, I love stories. This was probably one of my first experiences of realizing what I bring to the table as a clinician. So this is for everybody who's an AT, because you know, I, I, I went to this conference every year, and it was the Society for Neuroscience. Tracy used to call it the Neuroscience Conference, which was pretty much very accurate. So this is an international neuroscience conference where neuroscientists in every aspect of neuroscience around the world came. So we mm-hmm. can only host it in three cities because it was that big. There were about 30,000 neuroscientists in one spot. So if you want to talk about the nerdiest place on Earth at certain points of time of the year, just talk to me. I can find it for you. Um, so I was small fish in big pond, right? Like I'm just a grad student. One earlier years of my PhD, who am I in this huge conference of these everybody who has a PhD? You know, I'm I'm nothing. Um, some of the world's most brilliant people are at this conference, and they had this little um, one day. They had this like hour chit chat on like a panel concussion because there was a lot of people who are neuroscientists that are starting to do concussion research some of them on rats some of them on humans and, and you know so they had this little you know panel discussion and they had brought in um, I think and what's her name from like the CTE studies right with the brains and they also have brought in I forget his name but he was a ex professional hockey or NFL player
2: mm-hmm. and
1: he was talking about it and so he you know, gave a speech and he kind of said, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about science because I'm not the person to talk about science. I'm going to talk to you about life as an athlete. And so this person talked about what it's like to be a professional athlete and why concussions and concussion research isn't necessarily always so easy, right? So there, he was saying things like, yeah, like we get paid more if we pay, if we play in the finals, right? So playoffs. So that's my livelihood. I want to play. So I'm going to hide concussions until like in that, right? Like he he talked about some of the very real things, um, and he was saying things like, you know, my my trainer was telling me I to be honest, but then I have my one coach who's telling me to play through everything. So he's like, you have as an actor, you have all these different components. And I'm sitting there in the room, being like, yeah, obviously, we all we all know this as ATs, right? We see this every day. And then he opened up the floor to discussion, and the you know people lined up, and I realized what I knew as a clinician because then I had some of the best neuroscientists stand up and be like, could we just take helmets out of football? Why won't that work? Like they did not understand how sports work. They don't understand athletes. They didn't understand any side of that equation. And I went from feeling like the dumbest person at that conference to feeling the smartest person in that room because I was a clinician, not because I was a scientist. And so I, I think we bring something to research that researchers really don't get so uh, like that changed everything for me that, that one moment kind of changed a lot for me to realize how important my clinical background was to what I was doing so you know and, and I think for us it should be you know if you don't want to do research that's totally fine but if you know a researcher wants to do research with you and you're willing to collaborate you need to and they're not a clinician, you need to really bring up these clinical things that they might not understand. Like this isn't feasible. Yeah. Like that's a great idea, but that's not going to work on the sideline. Yeah. Right. It's not going to work in the clinic. Yeah. So So, we, feasibility, it's a (laughs) thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, And I love that you're able to do both, right? Like that makes it, that makes it massive. Like you can deliver on both sides and then you can also have the conversation in the middle. So help me understand as, as a pseudo practitioner, as a practitioner or or, uh, you know, a field scientist or whatever we're calling ourselves these days, somebody who works with other human beings, you make it relatable, usable, um, and make it a two way to a to um, a topic of conversation. Um, y- you talk about a couple things that I just want to touch on as well. And that's, that's sort of like as ATS And when you're working with teams on a regular basis, so- sometimes we may not be academically driven in our mind, like we don't think it's that. But We pick up on so much in terms of, you know, trends and findings and all these other things. And sometimes it's like, why do I keep seeing this? And sometimes the answer is, well, just one of those seasons. But sometimes it's like, yep, just one of those seasons. But let's find out why it's one of those seasons. Because I've been doing this for so long that I need to put my foot down here and say like, what are we doing? What are we not doing? And how are we missing? And you don't have to take on all of that yourself. You can align with people who are willing to sort of look at, you know, the statistical side and the more academic types of things, if you can navigate that a little bit and network. And I think that's a huge, huge proposition as well for ATs um, in, in Canada as well, because there's not a lot of research from collegiate settings or high school. set. I know there's a lot coming out of Calgary and, and a few other places, obviously, wherever you go and these kinds of things. But um, but it's it's nice to hear you say that. And then you talk about like being a small fish in a big pond. And that just brings me to like, life chats with James. And, uh, and, and value and potential are, are self-limiting factors, right? Like you walk into a room and you feel this big, but that's on you, you know? And, and so as we move through uh, our careers and our acknowledgement of what it is that we can and will do, I liken this to a physical movement that I do now with virtually everybody. And that's have them, you know, raise their hands up and see where they feel the ends of their fingertips. And when they do that, they only reach to a certain point. And then all it takes is an external cue, an audible cue where I walk past them and I say, that's not the end of you reach further. And then all of a sudden they reach a half inch, an inch, two inches further. And like, your potential is limited by what you think your potential is. I can see more in you. And sometimes it takes that, but that's a huge realization for you to walk into a room and be like, I can tie all these dots together. And I sat and listened to um, one of his first ones. I think Eric Lindros started putting on uh, uh, a concussion thing in London, Ontario. And I think he's still doing it. Now I run into him like at random. I see him around uh, in Toronto, not lately, but before. Anyway, and uh, and I think that's great. Like, I, I think it's great that athletes are talking about it. I think it's great that athletes and clinicians can be on the same panel so that they can start hearing one another instead of you know what it used to be it was very much like here's what the science says, here's what the athletes say, and they're we're just not we're not we're not connecting. So this is where the ATs come in. I think it's amazing stuff that you're doing that you have done. So um, I, I just posted your earlier one, your twenty sixteen. I think it's your 2016 publication over here on the, in the chat box, that one with the the history and the contributions to that one. So I'll put up more resources on the YouTube channel when I post the video. Um, You can just
1: send them by uh, Google. I have a Google scholar link. If you want to
0: just- yeah, I'll do that when I get to the YouTube. I just had this one handy because I I did a little research myself. When I knew you were coming on because uh, I had to try and keep up. Um, but anyway, so so sitting next to Joe for I don't know a couple years, I guess, in the Gorman Shore Clinic at York University, uh, I learned so much in terms of uh, you know h- how to address this. I'm I'm not an academic. I'm I'm more of a clinician. I was closed minded to that academic side until I was. I think you kind of pointed out to me you're like you're you're not not academic it's just that you don't see that you're using evidence-based practice as much as as I do you know so you kind of pointed out like here's where you're using this here's where you're using this and that kind of triggered some things in me and so I was the old guy in the room doing a master's while I was going through um, you know my end portion there at York and that was such a valuable experience to me now uh, to hang my hat and say like, you know, Hey, like I, I did a little bit of stuff of digging into those numbers and looking at the why. And there's, there's, uh, there's a huge uh, advantage to understanding why you're doing what you're doing and how to go about finding answers to to change things. Right. So um, massive. Anyway, um, you, you're Winnipeg now camison uh, online. What about uh, COVID? Um, virtual, obviously, right? And that was uh, an interesting transition, new new role, and then, hey, let's meet and do everything by two-dimensional. How was that? Uh,
1: yeah, it was... Uh, uh, I think anybody and I think everybody here, being in an AT program, having to do anything online is frustrating. Uh, frustrating from my perspective, but I would say it's probably more frustrating for the students because uh most at students are hands-on learners let's they're applied learners yeah you guys can maybe argue if you want but a lot of them are applied learners um and, and that's what you're going to school for like that's what you want to do you want to practice these skills so um, you know I, I felt yes it was in the middle of the a, of a semester there was a week where i wanted to cry a little bit with the amount of work i had to switch over um but um luckily i had nothing else going on in my life except for work so i just put in a lot of hours and got that going but um you know i i, I think compared to the students um the students who are impacted the impact to the faculty is is minimal mm-hmm. um it do, it is frustrating and i think everybody's frustrated about just the unknown right like we can plan we're trying to plan for the best that we can with the realization that things might change in an instant, right? So, you know, going forward, I think a lot of institutions are trying to plan for some of it being online, some of it being face-to-face if possible, but that's all institution-driven and then who knows if that changes next week. So um, I think the hardest part is being unable, I I finally got a full-time job where I got the summer (laughs) to plan out my courses and then I can't really plan them because everything's gonna change. Right. so that's frustrating but um yeah I, I you know I hope we can get uh, some sort of new normal and I'm glad we've had the summer for now I think I think the fall will be better than it was in the spring simply because as faculty we had time um to really see like I, I would never run my courses the way I did right like I would completely change how I did them so um it gives me the opportunity to change courses and and you know maybe like how I'm examining things or how much things are worth or what I'm providing for students um and I can go and search out kind of online resources for students so it, it does allow me some time to kind of find that so I, I do feel like the fall will hopefully be uh better but I say that with full knowledge that things might just change again in the middle of it and then we'll be in the same situation
0: so yeah yeah uh, and who knows <laughs> about this so so we won't uh we won't, uh, we won't guess. We'll just kind of play it. We'll be in the moment and we'll do that. And speaking of courses, uh, you're developing something for, for con ed, right? Is that right? For, for practitioners? Is that a thing that's happening? Uh,
1: I'm trying. Uh, yes. It's uh, progress. Um, I, so progress. So if you guys yeah, want to know, Yeah,
0: everybody wants to know
1: I'm working on developing a uh, concussion, Course for clinicians, and I think what's one of the biggest things that's going to be different for my course is that it's not going to be necessarily an applied course. Like, take this course, you can do this skill, mm-hmm. which is what a lot of clinicians really like, and, and I get why. Um, mine's really going to be about the science. It's it's going to be academic in nature um, because what I've noticed, and I, I think it's changing, is that um, there is a lack of understanding of the science behind concussion. So yep. we kind of have learned, like, hey, like, if I asked everybody here about the SCAT five, everybody could do it, but does everybody understand it? And yep. When I say understand it, can you explain to me exactly the neuroscience behind why you're doing each aspect of the SCAT five? Probably not, right? And and to me, as a clinician, um,
2: we we should understand what
1: we're doing, right? So, you know, like, you should really understand. And I'm not saying, you know, that, um, for example. Uh, a lot of people do visual or vestibular or ocular motor rehab. It's,
0: it's trendy. Yeah.
1: Trendy right now. Yeah. Okay. That, that's fine. But do you know why you're doing it or what you're doing or what impact you're trying to obtain? Probably not. And I think it's important to really understand kind of the neuroscience behind that. So when it's not working or it is working or what's going on, you can actually educate your patient because educating your patients is going to make a huge difference in their recovery. Yeah. So uh, for me, that's, uh, that's kind of my um, passion is understanding the things that we're doing. And I, you know, so if some, if you guys have that passion, you can come take my course. But uh, yeah,
0: when, you, when you're, also- when you're ready, let me know. Cause I, I'll certainly tell people about it on here. I, I think um, if you haven't learned from Joe and you haven't had the opportunity to talk with her, then uh, A, you're missing out, but there's plenty of time to catch up now. Um, but B, uh, get out to the conferences, listen to her speak. Um, and if there is a course offered, you're going to get more depth than any dollar amount can really be hung on. So, so don't even worry about that because the foundational stuff is massive. Yeah. Thank you. So whenever it's ready, just let me know and I'll do my best to to put it out there too. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, how to explain science to people who don't know science. I need some metaphors to use. Yeah, I think this makes I, sense.
1: I can give you a great metaphor right now if you want one.
0: Yes, give us the metaphor. Everybody wants my, a good metaphor.
1: My favorite metaphor to use for athletes in particular is comparing a concussion to an ankle sprain. Yep. Because a lot of athletes have had an ankle sprain. And I actually use this for clinicians a lot too because for some reason a concussion is this like crazy thing. And I say, well... When someone has an ankle sprain, the first thing you do is get them off it, right? You the the rice or the ice or principle, whatever you want to call it, right? You you wrap it. You maybe give them crutches depending on it, but you basically get them elevated and get off it ASAP, right? We have that inflammatory period of 24-48 hours. We know that. So same with the brain, the first 24-48 hours, you need to rest that. You need to let that heal. So that means um, sleeping is great trying to stay off everything right so shutting down the brain as much as possible for that first 24 to 48 hours right yep then just like an ankle sprain we want to start moving it we don't just want to hold the ankle sprain and not use it because it actually gets worse we want to start moving it so we want to start moving the brain so that means we start doing things um but the ankle you know, if we just go out and play sports, we're going to, we can't do it. Right. It's not ready yet. Same with the brain. we need to kind of slowly ease into it. Um, and then, so kind of like how we need to rehab the ankle, we rehab the brain in the same way. Right. Differences, you know, I, I, and we all know an ankle sprain, while we might be able to get them back on the field, it takes actually a full year for that ankle to heal. Right, that ligament to heal. And even yeah. then, it heals a scar tissue. It's not healing with ligament. So even though I might be able to get you on that field, you are still increased risk for another concussion because you're not fully hundred percent and you might never get back to fully hundred percent. So that's how I kind of explain it to athletes is I really relate it back to ankle injury and they tend to understand ankle injuries, so they tend to be like, Oh, okay, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that's one thing that I always, always, always felt like about concussion. I was like, why is everybody scared of these things? Like, I, I understand that the long-term effects—that's—that's uh, that's reasonable to not to understand, but not necessarily to be afraid of. It's that we get so far down the road without knowing, and then we're doing a, a retrospective look at like all the things that we did while that brain wasn't healed. That's the problem. It's not the concussion itself. It's the things that like during the healing process is like you just had your ACL done. Yeah, you're not blowing it out at month 3, but it, but you're pretty strong. Like go back and play the ACL graft may hold, it may not, but like five years down the road, seven years down the road, that knee probably needs to be, you know, a total replacement, whatever, those kinds of things. And it's not, I mean, it is the same, but it's not the same, right? Because the brain tissue is obviously in like the integrated nature of the brain and all the systems that the brain is responsible for. Uh, But I think that's a great analogy. And I actually think that Katie, um, not surprisingly, Katie and I talked about that as well when she was on is just kind of like, we don't need to be scared of these, but we certainly need to be informed. And so that's another huge reason that you should take courses with people like Joe, with people like Katie who are offering stuff um, on this. And and so your course with... Um of course, your your breakout session at the CATA conference in 2019 was so dynamic between the two of you, um, but so dynamic, just like stand up and have people who weren't concussed. They might have been heavily hung over, which may mimic each each other, but, um, you know, stand up and do some balance work and do some pretty simplistic tasks uh, and then say, okay, and, but, and then the takeaway for me was like, we're having People who are concussed or recovering from concussion do all these monkey tests that don't necessarily even, you know, they're just kind of trendy. And it's like, it's like the, the the people who are walking around and doing handstands. Have you noticed this on Instagram? Like they're on, they're doing handstands that are very trendy, but you have to have like a nine pack and you have to have your shirt off and you have to have like perfect lighting. Like that's the only way you can do a handstand, I think. Cause that's the only way I've seen it done on, uh, on the interwebs, but you're hey, right. I
2: can't do one.
0: Yeah, but you don't need to. What's the point? Like, let's think about what the point is. It's like juggling as part of a, a concussion rehab when, I don't know, let's not use that analogy because juggling might be a thing that we can use. But anyway, um, I, I think that's great. It simplifies it for me. It's certainly an analogy that <clears throat> practitioners can use, but use with caution, I think, is the other is the other edge of that, is that um, you know, we can't simply say, oh, yeah, you just got a concussion. Don't worry about it. Like, it'll be like, you know, we'll give it a timeline and, and you'll be back. It's it's not. It's a little bit more individualized than than most injuries physiologically, right? So, um, yeah, interesting stuff. Uh, some of the new developments with concussion, right, from Berlin to Berlin, the the days of a standard concussion resolution of symptoms changed, right? It went from 7 to 10 to 7 to – or 10 to 14, right, in the last one. Um yeah. Any other updates? I mean, it was a couple of years ago now, but like anything that you want to give us in terms of concussion and things that people should be on the lookout for, or, you know, common misnomers or anything, I don't know, just tips off the top of your head. And anybody's uh, got any questions, feel free to type them in. We're getting past an hour here.
1: That's hard because sometimes things to me, I've looked at it for so much that it's just, oh, of course, who doesn't know this, but that's sometimes ignorant of me because I know it, you want know, to stare at it for a day like eight hours a day. Um, uh, I don't know, I think ATs um, in general are more informed than people think. Yep. So um, I think don't discredit your clinical ability or clinical knowledge. Um, that's one of the biggest things. Um, I, I don't know, I don't know what else to, I guess the, the one of the biggest things I guess that came out of Berlin that, was related to my research and coming back to what you're saying Mm -hmm. is that they've kind of realized now that signs and symptoms or maybe katie talked about this is clinical recovery that does not mean that their brain is healed right just because they feel better does not mean that they should be able to be contacted right um and my my feeling and this isn't necessarily proven this is what i'm pushing for and it was kind of discussed and i think research will show this is that if I could start their return to play earlier, which now is re- recommended, right? To get them doing activity right away for 24 to 48 hours later. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to start them on activity sooner, but what we aren't doing as clinicians is that stage three, stage four of that return to play where it's complex movements. Uh, I think that's, kind of glossed over a lot by, by clinicians, um, where it's like, yeah, 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 do what you can in practice. Um, no, they they should be able to do if if their practice is two hours, they should be able to do two hours worth of high intensity exercise that requires cognition. If, if they can't do two hours with the practice because their practice is all contact, then you didn't do that stage. So you need to make sure you do it. And maybe you need to spend three or four days on phase four, before you yep. put them back into contact, um, and I, I, I hope that becomes kind of a new normal where we spend more time on that high intensity, um, really complex skill movement because that's actually what's really, really, really challenging the brain, right? Yep. And we want to challenge it and challenge it and challenge it and challenge it so that when they do go back and we know that it's good to go. So yeah. I think those kind of um, You know, and I think ATs can play a big role in that because I feel like the return to play is is created very generalized. And if you're working with one sport, go make yourself a sport specific return to play. Talk to your coaches, say like, hey, what can we do for this phase? And like, how can I add cognition? What drills do you do that require them to think? Like, what do you do? Um, So I used to talk to my football coaches and that's where it kind of helped me with my players was to create some return to play that were you know targeting kind of cognitive load with
2: movement yeah i
0: think it's awesome it's it's fantastic to hear you say that because it's sort of like the science and the surgeons or neuroscientists determine what the rtp is but there's got to be some art here there always has to be an art element to what we're doing and integrating back into sport and as you're talking i'm thinking about where did i spend the most time with athletes and where do most people spend the most time with athletes it's like you know, um, with an ACL protocol, you spend all this time, but that front loaded time is so easy. And then it's like, Oh, it's been six months. I'm just going to go back on the field and I'll just go to run. And then I'll just run a little bit. And then I'll go back into practice and do things at 50%. It's like, hang on a second, that graft and your brain and the motor pattern and all these things that need to be ingrained, that has to be extended with an ACL. So with brain injury that return to play tends to be condensed because there's timelines, right? Like in, in some of our minds, there's always timelines of, I just played a game on Saturday. The next game is uh, Saturday but we have a five-day protocol. So how am I going to get this guy ready or this girl ready for her next competition her next football game her next rugby game, whatever it might be. And, 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 and Glenn talked about this on Wednesday. And I just want to bring it up again. Cause it was such a huge point. He says like, I'm saving you from the coach. That's what he tells people his role is, you know, but even further to that point, he says, I'm looking out for you as a 65 year old grandfather, grandmother, not for your current state as you are set in your mind right now. And so like the long-term effect of things um, is massive to look at, but that's the clinician in you, right? Like that's the clinician as well as the scientist coming together. And I think there's a lot of room here for discussion with coaches and with, with organizations as to like what's best suited. And and people also have to go to the model of, uh, uh, of Stu, Stu McGill, who's like go-to answer is it depends. It depends. There's no cookie cutter program. It just does. And so when you get better at the science, you have to develop the art along with it to return athletes, regardless of tissue injury, um, but brain certainly. Um, Anyway, there's uh, a lot of research being done in terms of uh, psychosocial aspects of recovery. Thanks, Jill. And hi, and uh, uh, not necessarily related to your research, but do you find there's a lot of research being done in terms of psychosocial aspects of recovery? Is this an area that's now being studied in the science? Uh,
1: it's not an area that I really um, focus on. So right. I, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily up to date on it. Right. Uh, but is it, uh, I think it's coming to the forefront
2: mm-hmm.
1: more than it used to be. Um I, I think it's going to become even more uh, to the forefront. Um, Iverson is a, is a name that I would um, recommend looking at. He actually created this for post concussion syndrome, which, when I think of recovery, I think of people who have persistent symptoms because that's clinician, clinically who we, who we see. Um, uh, he created this biopsychosocial model. Um, and it, it's, when you look at it, you're like, oh, that's why we don't understand post congestion syndrome because it has this like, probably like 20 things, like, you know, probably, probably like a hundred reasons why there's psychosocial aspects of recovery. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I, I think it is a, a huge part, like probably, you know, I used to be the person who was like, ah, you know, but, um. I've actually changed my mind a lot that I think psychosocial aspect of recovery is probably the most important part, if not one of the most important parts of recovery. So um, if you are able to um, refer to a psychologist or a social worker or somebody who can help with the psychosocial aspect, I think you'll actually have um, a huge benefit for your patients. But again, there's a lot of of patients don't. Feel a, they want a physical injury, they don't want a psychosocial injury, right? So, there's like making sure you're having a conversation with your patients about why this is an important aspect. Um, yeah, somebody once told me they're like, Oh, it's you know, the, the joke of it, or the whole thing of mental health being in your head. And well, it is mental health is technically everything to do with your brain. So, yeah, is it physical? Is it is it? We don't know. So, I, I think it should be definitely um check or look at that jump so
0: yeah Yeah. I just threw that one up. Um, the title there, uh, based on the the link above. So if anybody's clicking on it right now, and again, I'll throw all the stuff that Joe's touched on and and her Google scholar stuff up on the YouTube channel in the comments section, once this gets up and ready to roll for the archive. But, um, yeah, I I think that's massive in like mental health and and the components of, of the social element and the psychosocial element in in all injury has been overlooked for a long time as well. And,
2: uh,
0: and and I would be, well, I'd be stepping out of my boundaries to say that a large element of, of, of prolonged symptoms are very much in that realm, the psychosocial realm, that, um, that, that there is nothing, you know, there is no longer a physical anything, but now you're looking at a long time removed from an identity that you once thought you were or felt you were, and, and those are things that are, wrong, are not really quantifiable um, in any injury. But we've had uh, we've had a bunch of athletes on here as well in terms of you know guys and and women who have been injured and and, and what that does to them on on that side outside of uh, outside of recovery, you know so physical recovery so I think it's an area that that definitely is going to gain momentum or gain some spotlight when it comes to concussion for sure as it goes uh, We had an opportunity to do some stuff um, with UNC. It was a great little project they were doing funded by Uh, the the big brother of the NFL Um, really cool project and and some great people down there. Canadian Jason Mahalik was leading the way with his, while his wife was kind of leading the way, Jonna, um, uh, Jonna. And so uh, that, that was pretty cool. Uh, Do you stay in touch with, with UNC with them um, through your research or through, you know, I don't know, Instagram or anything? Uh,
1: I did initially uh, via email uh, keep in touch with Jonna more. So when I first uh, moved to Winnipeg, I haven't talked to her uh, much recently. So I probably should reject her again to say hi, but, um, and, and Jason
0: and I have all some social media and stuff, but yeah. 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 Cool. Very nice. Um, if anybody has anything for Joe, I'm going to cut this off here fairly soon. We're, we're beyond an hour and I kind of promised that she should be gone by an hour or so, but such is the life of talking to, talking to James, it becomes a long winded conversation, <laughs> mostly on my end, as we well know. Um, but if there is anything, uh, one or two questions for Joe, how she got to where she got to, why she did what she did, what she's doing next, uh, when she's coming to to your uh, accredited institution to teach as an instructor, uh, I think this is this is three, right? You're, you've nailed three now. So you have, uh, what is it, five left to go? You have time. I feel like you have time. You have time. Um, yeah, so I'll let that flow in. But other than that, Joe, everything's good? You're uh, you're looking good feel like your research is happening the online stuff I can't wait to attend your course too by the way the uh when you get that rolling so let let me know um and I'm in the same boat just just kind of plug it along and and trying to provide some some greater depth when the hands-on stuff isn't available I struggle a little bit with delivering coursework and material because I'm a very like let's get let's get to it kind of kind of a learner myself and, an instructor. Um, but offering online elements is, is, is on the way on my end too. So um, would love to have you on board for that one when, when we get to that. Um, and I'll certainly keep an eye out for yours and, and push that thing forward on uh, whoever I know and whoever's on here, paying attention to this uh, down the road. So it's been great. And, and we look forward to, uh, to getting in contact and staying in touch as we move forward. If there's not anything else for Joe, I'm going to let her go. Uh, Oh, is there, hang on. Uh, Oh, yeah. Uh, just a whole bunch of thank yous and, um, uh, thanks for your knowledge at U of W. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of people out West now that I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm jealous of for getting to be able to sit beside you and hear from you in classes and stuff. I, I, I really, truly, uh, um, miss those times just kind of sitting beside you and, and talking about whatever it was, but, uh, um, learning from you more than anything else was, was, uh, was massive in in moving forward and sort of staging my career to, to move into whatever realms that's going to bring in the future. So again, thank you for, for helping me. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the research that you're doing. It's important. Um, and, and for tying those things together, you know, the research and the practical, I think that's, um, when we have people like you in, in our profession, it just, it just really, um, enhances everything that we're doing that we can do opens our eyes to, to, you know, different streams, different avenues. So, Thank you so much for all of that and for your time this evening.
1: Yeah, no problem. And I know I learned as much or more from you that I think you learned from me in those clinic days. Uh, so thanks for pumping my tires. But I don't,
0: <laughs> I don't know how to how to how to fit fit seven Tim Hortons coffees in your body in the matter of six hours is kind of a thing. But uh, I'm glad I taught you one thing at least, and that was you know. Tim Hortons coffee is the thing. So this should be supported by Tim Hortons. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Um, But yeah, no, it it was a pleasure. And I look forward to what these next steps bring and, and uh, uh, across the country, but not removed. So really appreciate it. Joe. Thank you. Thank you so much. This has been great. This has been Let's Chat and Athletic Therapy Roundtable Session 28. Uh, I'm going to stop recording. Uh, Thank you everybody for being here this evening and for all of you picking this up on the archive on the YouTube channel. Um, I look forward to being in touch as well. For anybody who's willing to stay on, I will hang out here for another 10 minutes or so afterwards. Thank you guys so much. Joe, have a great night. We'll be in touch. Thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community. Check us out online. Firststartherapy.com That's F-I-R-S-T-A-R therapy.com Or email us with feedback. Consult at firststartherapy.com C-O-N-S-U-L-T at firststartherapy.com on Instagram at firststar.therapy and our podcast host at firststartherapy.com Let's chat.at. This is First Star Let's Chat, an athletic therapy podcast.